you'd remain standing, our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. It's good to be here with you all this morning. I want to thank everyone who uh, participated in the barbecue fellowship night last Sunday. Uh, the food was wonderful, and even better was the fellowship. So uh, I had a great evening visiting with so many of you. Thanks to everyone who brought a dish to share, and also those who helped to stay and break down tables, chairs, and helped clean up in other ways. This morning's our second Sunday in our current sermon series where. Uh, we're looking at a word that for so long the church has kind of done its best to avoid, and that's evangelism. Uh, in this series, my hope, and in, for those of you that, that have read this book, if you haven't, I encourage you to do so. Uh, there's one copy in the Welcome Center. Um, also, if you've read it, pass it on to someone else in the church and have them read it too because it's, it's easy to read, it's humorous, um, and it really breaks down and, and kind of goes along with, with what we're talking about in this sermon series when we talk about evangelism. Because it's our goal as Christians that we should be able to look at the Scripture and we should be able to identify ways that evangelism is an essential part of our faith journey. Because part of our faith journey, if you go and you read in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, is our faith journey is in the way that we live in response to Jesus Christ. Part of what we're called to do is be witnesses for Christ. And so for others to encounter this same gift that we've been given, which is the saving grace of Jesus. We have to, to make new Christians. We have to help turn new Christians into disciples. And then we have to take that next step, which is sending people out to, to carry the gospel, including ourselves, uh, out to make new Christians again. It's a cycle of faith, if you think about it. And as I've thought about it, as I've read this book and then also been thinking about this sermon series, I think, um, you know, too often the cycle either A, stops because we don't ever tell people about Christ or we don't ever make the invitation, or B, what we do is we get people to come to church and then we get them plugged into a group and we're like, hey, that's great. We don't have to do anything else after that, right? And I'm not saying that it, that that to, to try and, you know, be, be hard on us, but I think that's just the reality is if we're not really functioning and focusing on that next step of what God calls us to do and being witnesses for Jesus, then we miss the point because we're not equipping each other. We're not equipping ourselves to go out and to make that invite because the invite is what God needs us to do so then that God can start working on people's hearts because it's crucial for us to embrace this next step. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at the world, I think the world needs more Jesus. Our nation needs more Jesus. Our community needs more Jesus. And there are so many things that I think as we look in the world today, where we either A, see people of faith living in response to the gospel, and we see how it's a good thing, and then also we can look and we can see and we can say, well, you know, that's really falling short. And I think it's because, you know, we all need more Jesus. And so anytime we make the invite, one of the, the best lines in this entire book, for those of you that have read it, and this is one of the few quotes I'll probably do directly, is whenever we do an invite, we might invite someone here or to this church, and next week we'll talk about that more, but if they come here, that's a celebration. If we make the invite and someone says, oh, well, I'm a member of X and X church, 
And then they go and they realize, you know, there's probably a reason they don't. They made the invite to invite me to their church. It's because I haven't been going to my church. So here's the best part, folks. That's a victory in itself. And I think that's a really cool way to look at it. I think it's a really um, Christ-centered way for us to look at it and think about it. Because anytime we are helping people to reconnect with Jesus, that's a kingdom win. And you and I have got to get in the business of kingdom victories, don't we? Because God has changed our life. God has changed our, our experience of life. God has changed what we're doing. And God creates us to be in relationship. And so anytime you make the invitation and it causes people to seek out a relationship in Jesus, whether it's here or in another church, it's a victory. And I hope that we can start looking at it that way. I know I need to start looking at it that way. And so one of the ways I've done that is I just pray for other churches in our community. I know it's like a huge thing. Like, I mean, you know, but, but that's not what we've done for so long. Is we've done everything for our church. And I think part of, of, of being in ministry and praying for our church means also praying for other churches so that our kingdom, our community will be changed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so why don't we do it? Why don't we share our faith? Why don't we make the invitation? And I want us to think about that for a minute because I think for many of us, it's because we don't want to be pushy. Who, who wants to be seen as pushy? No? I mean, look at the media. Think about it. You know, we watch... Um, different programs, and, you know, Christians are always portrayed as pushy, aren't they? I know that in the extreme, there are some pushy Christians, but I also think that part of the reason Christians are portrayed as pushy is because the people who are portraying us as pushy, they're doing it out of self-preservation. And what I mean by that is self-preservation is who wants to think about their sin? Who wants to think about the places in their life where they're falling short of who they know God wants them to be and where they want to be? And so what is it easier to do? It's easier to just kind of, kind of, oh, you know, Christians are pushy, and then that keeps them from having to think about their own sin. They don't have to think about God. They don't have to think about living for something or someone that's higher than they are. They can just live for themselves. And I think that's something that all of us wrestle with, and I think as Christians, we have the humility to be able to say to God, I don't have it together without you. I fall short of who you want me to be. I fall short of who you have created me to be. And so I think part of why we see it is, is we don't want to be seen as pushy. I think part of it, too, is self-rejection. There's rejection. Who wants to be rejected? Not many of us. It's not often that we seek rejection out. I think another reason we don't make the invite, and I think this was big in, in the 80s and the 90s, is I think we were told if we live like Christ, people see Jesus in us and they'll come to church. And so whether we're, we're going somewhere and we're helping in, in a social organization in the community or doing other things, you know, people will see that, that our motivation for why we're doing what we're doing is because of Jesus. And so they'll come to Jesus, except here's the thing is we've disconnected all of those things we do with the reason we do them. Like the whole reason most of us do the things in the community that we do, whether it's delivering meals or some of the other things, folks, it's because of our faith, is it not? We do it because Jesus has commissioned us to go out and to help others and, and to provide justice and to do all of these other things. And so when we connect, disconnect 
the reason for why we do what we do, then people just look at you and they say, well, you know, they're a really good person because they're doing this when really, yeah, you're a good person, but you got to be able to share the motivation for why you're doing what you're doing, right? And I think that's what keeps us from inviting others. And I also think that Satan, you know, if we're going to talk about the battle of good and evil, if we're going to talk about the, the, how there's a battle over our souls, I do believe that Satan wants you questioning your faith. And I do believe that whenever we question our faith, Satan sees that as a victory because it causes us to step back. It causes us to question who we are. It causes us to question what we believe. And usually if you're questioning what you believe and you're questioning who you're, what you're about, then you're not going to tell anyone else about it, right? And so I think Satan works overtime in this to get us questioning who we are and what we believe and what we're about because it keeps us from inviting others to discover the same freedom that we've discovered in Jesus Christ. And so, friends, as part of this series, each Sunday we're looking at one of four different areas. Uh, we have to know the gospel. Last week we talked about the gospel. Today we're going to be talking about how we embrace the gospel as good news. You have to claim the call that Jesus has made for you to be a witness. And finally, you have to claim that sharing your faith is part of being a Christian. As we ask the Holy Spirit to, help, to guide us, to help us to proclaim the gospel in our lives. And so last Sunday we asked the question, what is the gospel? And so we're going to review it really quickly. The early Christians called the gospel the good news because Christ had changed their life. And they wanted nothing more than for other people to discover how their lives had been changed and have their lives changed in turn. And so as the early church wrestled with, with uniform belief of what it meant, what our orthodox belief was that would be passed on for over 2,000 years to us today, there are some common beliefs that became fence posts that are things that, that are around the edge of the fence so that anywhere inside the fence, if you're in that place, you're in orthodox belief, you're in a place where, where all of Christians or the majority of Christians uh, can agree on. And so last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul highlights these things. And what are the things that Paul outlines as fence posts? He says, Jesus died for our sins. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins. Like, we just can't. That's the whole motivation for the reason that God sent his son, is it not? For God so, sent the, or for God so loved the world, he sent his son so that all who believe in him will, will not die and have everlasting life. The Bible teaches that we're sinners. We're in need of grace. We're in need of forgiveness. Paul writes in Romans that, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And this proves God's love for us. And so for us to be Christians, we have to say, and we have to stand on, and we have to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Also, we have to believe that scriptures are accurate testimony of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. The Gospels tell us all about it, don't they? And that's all we have, and that's all we need. John Wesley said that, that the Scriptures, old and new, contain everything that we need for our salvation. If you go and read Martin Luther and other you know, church fathers that we look to in terms of the historical faith, they all agreed on this point, that the Scriptures contain everything we need, and so we can't omit and we can't add to the Scriptures things that, that we to either fill in gaps that we think are there or to change things that we don't like. I know I said last week, whenever Jesus said, forgive people 70, 70 times 7, I mean, that's a lot of forgiveness, and life would be a whole lot easier if Jesus didn't have that expectation on me, right? We also have to say that Jesus was died on the cross and he was buried. 
There's a fact that Jesus died on the cross. They pierced his side. The scriptures tell us this. He was wrapped in burial cloths, and he was buried in a stone tomb. Guards were posted outside of the tomb for three days. Jesus was not temporarily stunned and then revived. He died on the cross. He was no longer alive when he was placed in the tomb, and that's a, a fence post that we believe as Christians. Because if he didn't die on the cross, then we can't be talking about the resurrection, can we? Because Jesus' resurrection is true. On Easter morning, the women went to the tomb and found the stone rolled away. Depending on which gospel you read, they're all a little different. But the main part is what's important. Is when they looked in the tomb, they did not see a body on the shelf where Jesus would have been laid. Instead, they encountered angels who told him, He is no longer here. He has risen. He was alive. He was alive because God's Spirit had filled him. He was alive because God had given him life. To be a follower of Jesus and to be a follower of a Christian, it's essential for us to believe in the resurrection. And finally, friends, we have to remember that the gospel tells us that we wouldn't know any of this if there were not witnesses. Jesus didn't rise on the dead and go off on his own. Some of them are named. Some of the people, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Peter, James, Thomas, Name any of the other disciples. They were all there. Crowds were gathered together on the day of Pentecost. I mean, they were all there. People gathered with, with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and shared in a meal. They were all there. They all saw him. They, they touched him. They saw him eat. See, friends, if I'm going to err in my faith, I would much rather err on the side of faithfulness as I read and believe what the gospel tells me about Jesus. Because if I believe in the gospel, then I need to share the good news as well. And so our scripture today comes from John, 13, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Uh, this is probably one of the best-known passages in all of the Gospel of John, and indeed all of the Gospels. Uh, John 3, 16, if you read it on its own, is probably the best summary of John's Gospel in, in, in the entire scope of Christian theology of God sending His Son to die for us so that those who believe in Him will have everlasting life. I know that's an awful paraphrase, but that's basically the point, right? And I think it's easy for us to overlook some things about this scripture. And I think that's something that I want to talk about this morning, is if you'll notice this scripture, where this scripture occurs is Jesus didn't deliver this scripture to the disciples. He didn't deliver it to the crowds who had gathered there that were uh, following him around and, and gathering whenever he was stopped to teach. Jesus doesn't make this statement as part of a larger sermon. To a bunch of people, Jesus makes this statement to a man who comes to visit him in the middle of the night. John wrote this about it. Now, there was a Pharisee named, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. All right, so what does John want us to take from this passage? The first thing is this man is a Pharisee. This means he's an accomplished teacher of the law. He's an accomplished interpreter of the law. It means that he is recognized by others by his faith and through his biblical interpretation. As a Pharisee, John wants us to see that Nicodemus has come at night. Why has Nicodemus come at night? What happens at night? Usually nothing good, right? Nicodemus is there. He's not there to argue with Jesus. He's not there to dispute his theology, as he probably would have done when he was gathered there on the streets or in the, the courtyards of the temple. 
I mean, here's what's kind of interesting. And um, as I'm thinking about this, this scripture and Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, can't you see Nicodemus is probably one of the same Pharisees who's gathered there uh, around Jesus in the temple courts as they're questioning him? I mean, think about it. It could be very likely that if Jesus was in the temple courts that morning, and he was talking to the, the Pharisees, and they were questioning him about what he believed and about what he was teaching. Nicodemus very well could have been one of those men gathered there who now is visiting Jesus at night. Because something has caught Nicodemus's attention. And so he wants to know more what Jesus means when he says his followers should be born again. What do you mean by that? Now, Nicodemus isn't to a point yet where he's willing to let others see that he's considering and thinking about Jesus' message. He doesn't want others to see that, that he believes that, that Jesus' message might be the message that he needs to hear, so he's there at night. And so what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again if he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And so Jesus talks about rebirth, about being reborn, about how God reborn, revitalizes us and, and how a new life in Christ is a new life in him. But Nicodemus can't see it. He can't see how a grown man can be reborn of his or her mother. As Jesus is talking, he's listening literally to what Jesus is saying. He cannot see what so many of us cannot see. And what Nicodemus can't see is that we can't get God on our own. We can't get to God through our own strength. We cannot be moral enough to get God. We can't be good enough. We can't be polite enough. We can't be smart enough. We can't be disciplined enough. We can't be anything enough because we cannot get God without Jesus. We can't get God without Jesus and his, sacrifice of his, and his sacrifice and his forgiveness. And we can't get anywhere near God's kingdom without Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to make us new. And isn't that what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? Is he saying, it doesn't matter how, how to the, the T that you follow the law, if you're not reborn in me, you can't get to God. And so he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. You must be born again. Jesus is saying you have to be born in him. Through the gift of baptism, through the Holy Spirit, that the ways that God chooses to transform us and to change us in ways that you and I can't do on our own. Because we can't be anything enough to get to God except through Jesus Christ. And how is this possible? See, as I read Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus, I see Nicodemus looking for a literal or linear way to God, don't you? And what I mean by a literal or linear way to get to God is he's saying, well, if I follow the ritual, if I offer the sacrifices, if I worship, and if I pray in the way that I know I'm supposed to do, that's all I need. But he doesn't understand how God is working through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. He can't anticipate what God is about to do through Jesus. He's too focused on his own understanding. And he's too busy looking for the Messiah of his mind that he's blind to the true Messiah that's standing in front of him. 
Friends, Nicodemus has all of the power. He has all the prestige. He has all the recognition. He has all the training. He has all the intellect. And he's unable to see who Jesus really is. He's unable to see who Jesus is because he's not able to see Jesus with his heart. And so this is when Jesus offers the home run of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. This is God's love that's offered to the world, not just for those who return their love back to him. This is God's love for the world, not just for the people of Israel. It's God's love for all people, even those who dismiss him, who disparage him, who question him, and even those who attempt to run away from him. Because God loved the world, he sent his son, and he gives the world the opportunity to repent and to change the path that they are on. For God so loved the world, he gives his love for you. No matter what you've done in the past, Jesus has been sent for you. So think about it. For God so loved the world, it doesn't matter how many promises we have broken, people we have hurt, or the times we've fallen or strayed off the trail. God sent Jesus for us. For God so loved the world that he uh, died for those who struggle with addiction, who are damaged, who have lived imperfect lives, or who are lost on life's journey. He sent Jesus for you. For God so loved the world that he died for those who have lived uh, double lives or secret lives, who have sinned that we don't want to share with anyone else. God sent Jesus for you. God so loved the world that he sent his son and fill it in whatever you want to say. Because God sent Jesus for you. He did so so that we might experience and receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross. Giving all of us the opportunity to repent of their sin. To have the opportunity to pursue God. And is, um, God's love is extended. And what's re- dependent is our response, right? Because the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus has nothing to do with us. But it has everything to do with him. I mean, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel tried to uh, get to God, and they, they followed the law that, that God had given them. And that's why God sent his son. If you look in the book of Genesis, we can talk, you know, the, the, book of, the story of Abraham. There's a story of, of Abraham and Sarah who were unable to have children, and eventually uh, they had a son named Isaac after God made covenant with Abraham, and God fulfills the promise that he makes, and God gave him this son, and in time God sells Abraham to take Isaac to sacrifice him. And Abraham took his son, he got everything that was needed, and you can see the picture. They went to the top of the mountain, they had the wood, and he was there to do the hard task. And as he raised the knife, God called out to him and stayed his hand. Abraham was supposed to offer a sacrifice like the people of Israel were offering that God has offered us in Jesus so we'll never have to offer a sacrifice again. Because whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This is hope. This is truth. It's eternal life that God offers us in Jesus. Because it allows us to approach God for ourselves. It allows us to have a relationship with God. It allows us to know that whenever we lift our prayers to God, it doesn't have to go through a mediator or anyone else. 
There's a reason Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. All can come to, no one can come to the Father except through me. Because Jesus is who makes us acceptable before God. So that when we believe in him, we receive eternal life. In his love, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for all people. It means he died for those who were persecuting him, for those who persecuted the early church, for those who scoff his name today. He died for the broken, the addicted, the fallen. He died for everything else. And all choice is to accept that love. Even when we feel unlovable, and even when we feel incomplete, the love of God can make you complete. And the love of God makes you lovable to him. Friends, in humility, we have to recognize that a life in Christ provides us a life that is far greater than we can ever achieve on our own. Because it's a life in him. Paul writes about this, that in Galatians 5.1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. For Christ has set you free. You have freedom. In Christ and through Christ that delivers you from death and offers you eternal life. If you think about it, death with Jesus isn't even a speed bump in our relationship with God. Instead, it's a gate that God opens to where you're in the presence of Him, of him yourself. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in Him. Because anyone who, who believes in Him, well, we're given life. You know, it's interesting if you think about it in John 3.16. We often in the church talk about John 3.16, but we don't really talk about John 3.17 very often, do we? I think it's because John 3.16 is a home run, and then John 3.17 just kind of bolsters it. Because misquoted, John 3.16 presents a love given to us from God that doesn't ever call out repentance, right? But John 3.17, as it follows 3.16... Friends, that's where the invitation is. To have the trajectory of your life changed in the way that Jesus changed the life of Nicodemus. It's to receive freedom. Because a life of freedom with Christ is more than anything you can do on your own. It's allowing and inviting Jesus to change you. And it's recognizing and claiming that you were saved because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we accept what the Bible tells us about him. We're saved that we believe. And we're saved because Christ died for our sins. Because of what he has already done for us. And he's changed our future. All we have to do is be like Nicodemus by seeking him out and encountering him, whether that's in daylight or whether it's in the nighttime, God is there. Jesus is there. Thanks be to God.